and welcome to the Freight Find podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'll be talking with Angie Acachella. Angie is currently a doctoral candidate at MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics, as well as a member of the MIT Freight Lab. Her dissertation, which she is close to wrapping up, explores shipper-carrier relationships within the full truckload industry. This is a continuation of research that CTL has been working on for a number of years in transportation procurement and management. Specifically, Angie's work focuses on two areas. The first is carrier reciprocity. That is, do carriers behave differently in tight markets depending on how a shipper treated them during a soft market? In other words, do carriers have memory? Are they goldfish with no memory? Are they elephants with a long memory? The second is market or index-based contracts. And what that means is where and how should shippers implement fixed contracts that include pricing modifications being allowed based on how a selected market index changes over time. And the great thing about Angie's work is that it is both theoretically grounded and highly applicable to practice. All of her research is with shippers, carriers, and brokers, and even includes pilot implementations to test out these concepts and approaches. So I think that both researchers and practitioners will take something away from our discussion today. So following my conversation with Angie, I'll be joined by Dr. Inami Yub to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Welcome to the Freight Find Podcast, Angie. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, so... Um, Angie, you're, you're a doctoral candidate here at MIT in the Center for Transportation and Logistics. Uh, I've got to ask first, what made you want to come back for a PhD? Um, yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't really an obvious thing for me other than after undergrad, um, I was working in the semiconductor industry and I felt like I was really interested in the technical problems and challenges that we were solving. Um, but as a true millennial, I wanted to be doing something bigger and, and you know, more life changing. Um, so I was thinking about what are the things that kind of make make our our role as humanity kind of something that are, is um, challenging right now. And so I came up with healthcare, um, food and water, things like that. And proper functioning of global supply chains kind of came to mind. And that's how I ended up coming back to MIT uh, CTL for my PhD. Um, and then ended up getting onto a project in freight. And as I learned more and more about kind of the, the nuances of how the, the industry works, the personalities. Um, I really enjoy the ability to have both an analytical, technical kind of solutions to these problems, but also having to understand those human behavioral aspects and to you know properly answer these these questions. Okay, so so the decision was kind of was not two separate decisions. I want to go back for a PhD and oh, let's figure out what I want to do. It was kind of joint for that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't know that. Um, to be, to be fair to everyone listening, uh, I'm on Angie's committee uh, for that, so I, I know a lot of the work. And the reason why I asked Angie to come on here is because she's been doing some interesting work over the last year or so um, dealing with freight transportation and shipper-carrier relations. And um, just to give you some background, um, PhD dissertations these days tend to be three related papers that you publish. So um, what Angie's been doing is working in three themes Let's say they're all kind of related, but they're distinct papers that she can publish. It's kind of the format that dissertations go these days. So what I want to do is, Angie, is talk through some of these because I think um, there's a lot of relevance to practitioners because as everyone who's listened to this podcast knows, we tend to do very applied things up here, but with big theoretical or strong theoretical grounding. So let's talk about the first paper. It was dealing with reciprocity 
between shippers and carriers. So tell us a little bit about that, what the hypothesis was, and uh, just give us some background. Yeah. So the main idea here is that markets, freight markets cycle between these periods of soft or loose um, markets where there is more capacity than there is demand, prices are low, and carriers' acceptance tends to be high. And then we have these periods of tight markets where demand rises, uh, forcing prices up, and we have carriers rejecting loads more. And so as that market tightens, there's a lot of emphasis put on the relationship of between shippers and carriers, this idea of um, what can shippers do to become shippers of choice and encourage their primary carriers uh, to continue to accept their freight so they don't have to rely on typically higher priced backup carriers farther down in the routing guide or spot. Um, and so we wanted to test if this idea of carrier reciprocity, if when shippers demonstrate good performance, competitive pricing to primary carriers in a soft market, do carriers reciprocate that and have higher acceptance rates during that next tight market um, and prioritize the freight for those carrier, for those shippers that had good performance in the past? Okay. And so what was it? What was the title of the paper? Uh, that was Elephants or Goldfish. What was the ongoing hypothesis then? That carriers were testing whether carriers are elephants are, with long memories or are we we're testing shippers we're testing carriers if carriers, carriers are have long memories like elephants right so they're remembering previous performance things like that from shippers um or are they more myopic they are more shorter term memories like goldfish and are they really considering just what's going going on right now current behaviors per, current market conditions things like that okay and so how were you able to answer this because this is the tricky thing you always have these great questions we want to answer but the devil's in the details. How, how did you go about proving or disproving the hypothesis? Yeah, so we had very lucky to have a very dynamic, diverse set of data. So we looked at load tendering behaviors from shippers and all of the acceptance rejection decisions from their carriers. We had 70 shippers over a time frame from 2015 to 2019. So it spanned that freight recession in 2016 into that very hot market in uh, starting in the second quarter of 2017 into 2018. And so for every shipper primary carrier pair, we measured the shipper performance performance metrics, including um, tendering consistency, things like that, um, dwell time, contract price competitiveness in the soft market. And then um, into the tight market, what were carriers, what was carriers acceptance ratios in that next tight market in the 2017-2018 period? Okay. And so what were you able to find? Our shippers, I mean, our our carriers, uh, goldfish or elephants? So we found that carriers are more like goldfish. So um, none of the the performance measures that we measured in the soft market influenced tight market carrier acceptance. But there were a few shipper behaviors in that tight market that were significant indicators for that acceptance rate in that same tight market period. Um, so things that influenced that tight market acceptance period were um, uh, consistent tendering behaviors, um, low low uh, destination uh, facility detention, and uh, one of the most important was the competitiveness of contract prices during that tight market. Um, and so that means that says to us that shippers really need to maintain competitive prices during that tight market period if they want to make sure that their acceptance ratios for primary carriers are maintained high in that that same tight market period. So it sounds like all those dimensions are that they should be during a tight market, a shipper of choice. Yes. That it matters. Yeah. But because carriers are goldfish, it really doesn't have that much of an influence how they behave in soft markets. Right. 
Right. So do you think that is a, a transportation specific thing? Or do you think that's just buyer seller behavior? Sellers have to be goldfish, right? Because they they have to take the business they get. What do you think? I think some of it has to do with that the things that are specific to transportation in that the fact that contracts are non-binding in volume for carriers, right? So in, in other supplier buyer contracts, the idea that you that a supplier is not going to fulfill part of its contract doesn't exist. And so this this flexibility in the contract mm-hmm. makes these dynamics in the market much more pronounced. And I think that's why we have these issues and why we have to think about the relationship a little bit more. So was this your hypothesis going in that carers would be goldfish or did you think they'd be more elephantish? I thought they would be more elephantish, mostly because talking with a lot of people in the industry, there's there's a lot of talk about that relationship. And that's why I wanted to try to isolate it. Right. Um, and I think I don't think it, my results show that there is not a relationship. I think it just shows that there are specific things that are that a shipper can do to maintain that relationship, but they're not as temporally um necessary, right? It has to happen in the tight market. The the long term kind of I can kind of pay it forward in the soft market and then, you know, just rely on that in the tight market. Right. Exactly. Temporally beneficial. Is that the phrase? Wow. (laughs) That's awesome. I didn't Um, put that in my paper, but. (laughs) (laughs) So what about shippers? So do you think shippers are elephants or goldfish? Because now they're on the buyer's side and that might be different. What do you think? Right. I think some of the same logic holds in that shippers are, beholden to what the market is doing, right? If they have demand, they have to be tendering. They need to move their, their freight. Um, and so one of the, the, you know, the idea of having more consistent tendering behaviors, some of that is out of their own, their control. Um, and so that's to say, I think they're going to be goldfish as well. Based on this research, I think they're going to be more like goldfish as well. Um, you know, it's only fair to do that next step of the research, which is shipper reciprocity, right? Do shippers have more attractive freight, better tendering, better pricing for carriers um, that have in the past maintained, you know, that acceptance ratio? Um, I think my hypothesis for that is that they're going to be more like goldfish as well. That'll be interesting to see because we do have a, you know, the you finished your study in what, what part of 2019? Did the data stop? The data stopped, I think, in the second or third month. So February, March of 2019. Yeah, because then we hit a recession, a freight recession, the yeah. spring to summer of 2019. Then, of course, the little pandemic hit, <laughs> uh, which had its own different cycle within yeah. it. So is that a, a follow-on, uh, follow-up work that you're contemplating doing? Yeah, for sure. I think, and as you know, I think there's some nuances to the pandemic that we have to also consider, right? Different industries were hit at different times, different regions were hit at different times. So I think, you know, as I continue that research, that'll be something that I have to also make sure that, that, you know, I'm just, I'm not saying that different, that all shippers were hit the same, that in the pandemic was, was different. Yeah. One of the interesting things for in the pandemic is that rates went up after in June and July. So after like three to four months, just tremendously, but volumes really didn't change that much for a number of months, but the prices went up because the balance was out. Yeah. And so empty miles were up. Uh, it was just crazy time. And so it'd be interesting to understand what happened then. Did relationships just fall apart or did they get stronger? But that's another yeah. another area. Any any last thoughts on the reciprocity, the elephants versus goldfish stream of research? Yeah, I think, I mean, one thing that when, when we've talked to people, it's I want to be sure that to say that this was not a the results don't say that, you know, the relationship doesn't matter. I think the results show that there's, there are specific things that need to be done at different times. And that's, that's what I think I take from that most. Yeah. Well, the nice thing is, um, because I hear this all the time too, I, you know, everyone likes to talk tough, you know, they weren't good to me. So therefore whatever, but the data is the data, 
is the data. And so it's nice to be able to separate that out. Okay, your second paper is uh, looking more at uh, the idea of a transportation portfolio. And um, tell us a little bit about what you were looking for in the second paper. What was the main question you were trying to answer? Yeah, so the next, actually the next two papers, we're really thinking about, okay, how can shippers maintain competitive prices, particularly in tight markets. Mm. Um, And so building off of that first paper, we wanted to see if shippers do need to keep those contract prices competitive, um, they can do it in a number of ways, right? They can do shorter term, you know, 30, 60, 90 day contracts. They can do um, index-based pricing or other dynamic pricing options. But we wanted to explore where within a shipper's network, what lanes, what freight segments, what carriers, are carriers going to be more likely to be pulled from that fixed price, traditional fixed price contract as the market moves around them? And might there be these be the places where they're better suited for an alternative procurement or pricing strategy? Okay. And how did you go about proving or disproving or identifying those those pieces of the network? Yeah. Um, so first, I wanted to build a carrier acceptance behavior model. So it's a model that based on empirical data of shippers, carrier acceptance, um, tendering, um, it's going to predict the probability that an individual load is accepted or rejected given characteristics about that load, the lane, um, historical lane volumes, tendering patterns, um, the carrier itself that it's being tendered to, right? If it's an asset carrier, what's the, how big is it? Um, if it's a broker, that they're going to interact with the market very differently. So, right? so Angie, uh, Angie, was that model load by load or was it for a lane? How did, how is it set up? Load by load. And then the characteristics of the load are things like what lane is it on? What are the characteristics of that okay. lane? So let me ask mm-hmm. a technical question because in this industry has changed dramatically since I came in in the nineties and there's much more data science going on. And mm-hmm. so a lot of what you're describing could be done with machine learning. Yeah. You come up with, uh, yeah, it's classifying, is this load going to be accepted or not? And look at those mm-hmm. common characteristics. I don't think you took that approach. What approach did you take to develop this model to estimate or predict if a load was going to be accepted or not? Yeah. So I just took a logistic regression model, okay. which is a pretty standard model. Um, and what I can do then, and the reason that I do that is because I have a little bit more, um, once I build that model, I have a little bit more knowledge of the variables and how important they are to whether the load is accepted or rejected. Um, And also then I have a a closed form analytical model where I can actually adjust different variables and say, okay, how does that impact the probability of acceptance? Okay. Have you done much machine learning? Yeah. So in fact, we, I also built a model based on a machine learning model, right? So one of the best in classifying tends to be random forest models. Um, and that I actually compared the the pr- predictive power of the machine learning random forest model versus the logistic regression model. They actually end up, be, end up being pretty good. So okay. I, you know, I, I leave a set of data out. That's my test data. I build the models on, on um, my training model, uh, my training data. And then once I build those models, I, I apply them to the test data to try to see, okay, how accurate are those, are those models? They ended up being pretty accurate. And so I went with, the, I still stayed with the logistic regression model because not only does it have very good predictive power, but as I said, I can, I can play with those variables a little bit more and, and get a better sense of yeah. the, the way that these variables impact probability better than something like a random yeah, that's, forest. That's one of the challenges we have because some of these machine learning models are really good, but they're hard to get. They don't have the explanatory value. That's the thing yeah. I, I always struggle with personally. Can they, because because you use some of those different, you need to know what's influencing, not just the prediction, but what are the drivers of that of that decision? Right. Interesting. Right. Okay, so yeah. what, what'd you find? 
Yeah. So like I said, so I was going to, I use that model now and I can, I can play with different, different levers to try to see, okay, um, the rate at which the probability of acceptance changes, um, is going to tell me how likely the, how sticky, um, or how sensitive a carrier is to different variables that I'm changing. Right. So as acceptance decreases, if we adjust, adjust the market price up, if we simultaneously vary these other network segments that we want to test, um, how effective are fixed price contracts essentially? Um, and so the, the, the results were that first were that brokers are better suited to market-based contracts than asset-based providers. When you, so say more suited, about, when you say more suited, what does that mean? Yeah. So they're about five times more sensitive to these changes in the market, meaning their acceptance rates are going to decline faster uh-huh. as the spot market price increases above that fixed price contract than an asset-based provider would. Okay. What, um, what does and, that su- suggest? Does that suggest that relationships between an asset-based and carrier and a shipper are stronger than a non-asset-based? Or is it a reflection of the non-asset-based carrier having to buy on the spot market? What do you think? What, yeah. what is the driver there? I think it's more the last one. And we've actually found this in the, the previous study as well, that it really comes down to how the, the brokers are interacting with the market, how they have, they have to be securing capacity, going out and getting capacity on a much shorter-term basis right. when they're fulfilling contracted um, loads. Okay. Um, so what do you think a shipper can do with that? What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, so a few other kind of things that I, that I found from this research, the first one also is that, um, the fixed price contracts are better suited for consistent high volume, high frequency lanes. Okay. Um, but market-based pricing strategies are going to be better for carrier acceptance on lanes that have more volatile demand, there's more infrequent demand, and then specifically for surge volume. So this is what I defined as a volume that exceeds 20% of the awarded volume. So kind of taking a more targeted approach to either index-based or market-based or more frequent bidding um, for these segments could be beneficial and and carriers will likely have better acceptance or be more responsive to the, those types of pricing on those segments. Do you think this would change, uh, you would adopt this within the normal RF, annual RFP bidding process or would this be something done separately? Yeah, I would, I would envision this as continuing the fixed price contracts for in the normal RFP process um, for those consistent, those high volume, those, you know, high frequency lanes. And then the separate segment, there's going to be a lot more interactions and having to negotiate with carriers on specifics of what a market-based price will look like um, for these other segments. Now, if it's just a shorter term contract, that might be easier to just implement in a more frequent bidding cycle. Um, if it's something that is a little bit more kind of, you know, alternative that we mm-hmm. can talk about in my next paper, right? There's going to be a lot more negotiations and a lot more kind of having to having to put a lot more resources dedicated to to in initiating those types of contracts. Okay, so this gets to identifying those lanes that should be segmented and maybe handled a little bit differently. All right, so yeah. tell us how this fits right into your third paper that deal yeah. with uh, index-based um, contracts. So tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. So this one, um, as I've been talking about, right, index-based pricing could be one way. We've heard a lot about it. Not a lot of people are really implementing index-based pricing, definitely not across networks, but even in kind of pilot or test 
test environments, um, but there's a lot of talk about it, right? And so the idea here for index-based contracts is that we allow the contract price to move dynamically with some market representative index. Um, and we want to determine if there's some relationship between implementing those contracts and actually having better mm -hmm. acceptance rates, right? Um, and so the way we did this, we actually were <laughs> very lucky. Um, so there was a, we have a uh, shipper partner that was bidding out their network in the end of 2020, in the third quarter of 2020. And some of their brokerage providers came back with 50% increases in um, prices over the previous right. year. Okay. And they said, of course, we can't do that, right? Um, and so they said, let's let's try something different. And they ended up piloting index contracts with two of their providers on a number of their lanes um, during this right, crazy tight pandemic market condition. Um, which as a, as a researcher, that was perfect because those are the exactly the conditions that I had said in the last right. study, we should try to implement these types of approaches. Right. So it's, right? it's almost a controlled experiment. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and so we had a lot of kind of interaction with that shipper talking about, as I was talking about those, um, negotiations, those kind of details that had to be just decided on upfront, how do you even design the index, things like that. And so for this particular study, they designed an index and we were trying to study, okay, how well does that specific design actually impact carriers' acceptance rates? Right. So in this case, they um, they pegged the, the index to DAT's national rates. Mm -hmm. um, they updated prices for the loads for the upcoming month's demand based on the previous month's dollar or cent change. Um, and they were going to update it every month, right? And so what we did was measure the percent change in primary acceptance for each carrier on each lane from before implementing the index, which is a soft market period. We had historical data from um, 2018 and 2019, so a softer market period. And then in the implemented pilot period was 2020. So we said, what's the percent change in primary acceptance rate for all of these carriers? Of course, everyone went down because it was the, right. the tight market period. Um, but did the percent change or the reduction in acceptance rate for these carriers that had index-based pricing, was that better than what other carriers ended up showing? Mm. Um, so comparing the acceptance rate from these pilot carriers on pilot lanes under index contracts um, to different carriers on the same lanes to different carriers on different lanes and from those same carriers actually on other lanes that actually had fixed price contracts in place. So let me make sure I understand. So the index based rates were for on just two carriers, two carriers, two carriers, two providers yep. on a series of mm -hmm. lanes and you had their behavior, their performance on other lanes that weren't under these index-based contracts, and you have other carriers that you saw their behavior on both the lanes under the um, index base for those other carriers, as well as other ones. So you, you had all four yeah. squares, right? You had all? Yes. Okay. And so what'd you find? Exactly. So we controlled for other factors also that could have cut, you know, confounding effects on acceptance ratios, right? right? Like we've talked about before. Um, and so the main result was that at least in this case, in the way that they designed this index, uh, index contract that the contracts did actually cause carriers to maintain higher acceptance rates. Okay. Um, but almost more importantly than that, that it didn't cause them that shipper to pay more for their loads, ultimately end up paying more for their loads than they otherwise would have. And that's because these index prices kept contracts uh, acceptance rates high and um, load prices were kind of kept at market price. But for the, the loads that were rejected by other carriers, 
those fixed price contracts resulted in higher backup price options having to be used. Okay. So let me ask a couple of questions. First, mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. every month they would adjust for the future month coming forward. Um, yeah. So if they saw DAT rates went up 5%, would they adjust their rates 5% or was it a multiplier? It was based on the actual dollar or cent change. So if DAT rates went up, you know, five cents, theirs went up five cents as okay, well. Okay, so straight. Oh, that's interesting. And was there a yep. collar? Was there anything? There was not did, a collar. No collar, either way. Okay. No collar. Did the Correct. rates, now during the time you did it, rates never went down? They did not. What, what did you talk about what you would do with the company if DAT rates went down? Was it a symmetric or asymmetric? Uh, the idea had been that it was going to be symmetric, right? So that it would go down. If, if rates went down, it would go down. Um, that said, you know, they, they implemented it during a time at time uh, when rates were going up and they didn't really have to address the, okay, well now rates are going down. Let's actually do that. Right. So the rates were going to be, the contracts were going to be in place for a year and then they were going to revisit it. So from October, 2020 to October, 2021 coming up now. Um, and so they were going to kind of revisit that after the year mark. So for application for this, um, because you had the, as you were testing it, you had it for certain carriers only on certain lanes. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that how you see this being applied? Or do you see this being applied on a certain number of lanes, regardless of the carrier or certain carriers, regardless of the lanes? Or how how fine grain do you think you can make this? I think that in in implementation, I think it's going to still, at least in the short term, still going to be carrier lane specific, right? So so the the shipper is still going to have to look at their network and identify specific segments that it makes sense for these types of these types of contracts. Um, I also think that there's there's something to be said for the idea that you know we want to make the procurement process a little bit easier, right? It's the, the idea is that there's a lot that goes into RFPs and how can we kind of bring in the, the, the resources, the time, the energy that actually takes to, to make sure these prices are up to date. Um, But I do think for the short term, it's going to be, it's going to be on a carrier lane level. Have you talked to, and and were the, the carriers that were used, were they asset based or non-asset? Non-asset. Non-asset. Okay. And yeah. so have you had a chance to talk to them? I'm curious if you have any qualitative data, any feedback. Did they find it? Was it a beneficial uh, arrangement for them? Or is this something they were just doing to please the customer for other lanes? What do you think? Yeah, I think I think they, the main, I haven't talked to them to, to answer the question, but I think the, the thinking, at least with the shipper, was that, you know, this is a compromise between we can't increase the prices so high to, to what you would ask for during the RFP. But if we can try something new, these carriers are long-term carriers with the shipper. They have high trust with them, right? So they were kind of perfect for trying something new. They were looking to try something new as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's also a characteristic of those carriers that not everyone's going to be willing to do, right? Um, they were willing to try something new. They had a long relationship. Again, back to the relationship, right? They had a relationship with this shipper. They were they trusted them enough to try to try something out and see how it would go. So do you think that it makes sense if, if a shipper is going to try this out, um, that they should look at specifically with non-asset-based providers? Or do you think they should talk to their asset-based as well? Or what do you think the target should be? I think the the data shows that the non-asset carriers are going to be are going to be best because of their kind of their business. I think that if there are carriers, there are asset carriers that are interested in it, we're showing that it does 
actually keep prices market competitive. And I think that's one of the main uh, strengths of this research is that the, the pricing itself ke was kept um, close to the market, meaning that the carrier was able to actually kind of make the margins that they expected to. Mm. Um, so I think if, carry if asset carriers are interested in it, I think there's a really good chance that that's, it's going to work well. It's just a matter of understanding the context and things like that. In this research, we did control for the, the carrier provider type, right? If it was an asset or not. And still the results showed that they were, they had higher acceptance rates. And so did they implement this by using a, uh, like an assessorial to this, or did they actually change the published rates? Because a lot of the complications in a TMS is how do you enforce this? How do you, how do you make it auditable? and traceable? How, how did they handle that? Or is this just kind of loose as a pilot? Yeah, they added a, an accessorial for each month, basically. Um, and I, in talking with them, they they did recognize that that was not going to be a long-term kind of mm. sustainable solution, right? There, there's definitely some technical um, challenges that they would need to figure out if they were going to implement it long-term. And what are your thoughts about how the mechanics were? I, this is the first time I heard that they actually increased penny for penny, because that, yeah. that has a a differing effect based on length of haul, right? Yeah. And so yeah. it favors longer hauls. Shorter hauls won't get as much because they have a shorter distance. Right. Do you have any other thoughts of how you would uh, implement that differently? Yeah. So, so one thing we've talked a lot about, you know, which index to use, and you, uh -huh. you're kind of getting to this, right? Which index to use? So they chose a national index and said, as that changes, right? And there's questions over how well does that actually represent the freight that's being moved, length right. of haul being one of those things, right? Um, and so, so that's one challenge that I think that needs to be considered is which indice, which indices actually represent the freight that's being moved. Um, how granular do you want to go? How granular yeah. is it worth going? Um, and is there even data available to do that consistently, right? Um, and then, so I think one one kind of sub piece of research would be what are the right indexes to be used for specific lanes or regions or things like that? Um, because that also gets to that negotiation between the shipper and the carrier at the time they're implementing it, right? Both need to be convinced that however the market is changing is the right way that, you know, that particular lane or that particular freight is going to be moving as well. Yeah, that's, it's, it's hard because this is one of those topics that everyone's all for until you get to the details and it gets really dirty with there. Yeah. Well, do you see any follow-up work to this? or do you, what, what do you think the next step would be uh, for yourself for this research? Yeah. So for the index contracts, I think the big thing is like we were just talking about, what are the, first of all, what are the parameters that even can be changed in implementing mm -hmm. index contracts, right? The index itself, the frequency of updating, is it forward looking like we had here or backward looking where you're kind of retroactively right. um, ad adjusting the prices, things like that. Um, and so, so the idea here is as I kind of expand on this research is, okay, well, identifying what are the levers that were actually implemented and then what are the best ways to to decide what those values should be a collar for example right what is the care the shipper's willingness or tolerance for price adjustments for that lane okay. um things like that so i think the the mechanism of the index needs to be studied a lot more as well all right so those are the three papers for your dissertation but you do a lot more than that you're looking at other things right and so is there any other research that you're working on that you think is of interest yeah, so we have one that's kind of wrapping up also soon, which is again about the shipper procurement, but um, looking at the freight that or the lanes that end up getting bid that don't under, uh, end up actually having loads materialize, right? And so the question is, well, one, 
are they, why are they being included in the bid? Are they being, you know, should they be? And then because carriers are responding to the RFP, are, you know, uh, um, agreeing to committing to some amount of volume, um, does that impact the shipper, the performance that that carrier ends up having because they are, you know, they're, they're not seeing the volume that's, that's, they're being, you know, they're, they're allocating their capacity to. Um, so that research we're kind of wrapping up, we're seeing that no, you know, carriers are not actually having some type of retribution for not seeing volume that's being committed to them. Um, but it still goes to the question of why are those lanes then being um, included in the bid, right? So there's so much that goes into including it, you know, the the resources, the actually preparing it, sending out to carriers, carriers bidding, and then actually awarding carriers to those lanes. Um, so we've characterized some of those lanes and trying to identify, okay, is it actually worth including them? They tend to be lanes that, you know, did not have volume on them in the past or had very low volume on them in the past. Um, and, you know, again, back to the segmentation strategy, what what lanes do actually even need to be in the bid in the first place? So, and we're calling those lanes ghost ghost lanes or ghost freight, ghost right? Lanes. Where yeah. the shipper yeah. bids them out, carrier responds, the carrier, the shipper awards them to the carrier, but then no volume ever materializes over the course of a year. And so... This was well, I mean, when you did this. I was I was actually surprised at how frequently this happens. So, yeah. do you have any rough statistics? Have you looked at that a little closer? Is it what what percentage of the yeah. lanes that come out when the annual bid that are ghosted throughout the yeah. year? Yeah, it's about 60, 50 to sixty percent of load of lanes are ghosted yeah. that year, um, and that's much more than we expected. I think. Um, it's a lot more than, you know, our partner company also expected as well. And, and that was consistent across years. It didn't, you know, was not correlated with market condition. Um, it was across shippers. It was even when we, you know, we looked at segmented in all different ways. It was really a pretty consistent number, which is pretty surprising. Yeah, but I know we couldn't because there's no volume on those lanes. You can't say if they're right. low volume or whatever. But if you look at the previous year, if there was anything, yeah. um, is it a thought that they're mainly those sparse, infrequent, low, low volume, irregular yeah. lanes. Yeah. And those and ones that are new, right? New. We also saw a lot of them ended up not having been previously bid either. Sure. So they were kind of new and they were, you know, maybe a new facility opened, things like that, um, that were just, let's, let's get a rate on that lane. But, you know? And for those, they would fall under many bids would probably clean those up and give a contract yeah. rate to it. Right. Um, right. So what, what do you think this, the implications are for a shipper then? For a shipper, I think it's it's important to think about, you know, what are the what is the time, the cost associated with including this in your bid? And is there a better way to, you know, clean out all of all of the, you know, the junk that maybe isn't going to materialize? And as you said, you know, procure it or get rates on there in a different way. Is it a mini bid? Is it maybe let it go to spot for a little while until that volume builds up and then actually get a contract in place? Um you know, things like that. It's, it's again, segment out the freight so that you're actually putting the time and all that effort into setting up contracts with carriers on the stuff that actually is worth it. Right. Makes sense. All right. Well, that's, that's great. Angie, any other things you want to talk about? Any, anything else you're, you're graduating sometime <laughs> this year? Is that the plan? Hopefully. Knock yeah. There wood? is a committee that allows me to, to finish or not. So. <laughs> all right. And if anyone wants to uh, contact you, is it okay if they just reach out to you, if they have any interest in finding out more about your research? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Angie. I appreciate you awesome. spending the time. You can go back to work now, right? Continue your writing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Um, all right, everyone, stay tuned to hear the market update with Dr. Inami Yu. 
Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for September 9th, 2021. In today's market update, we will discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with dry van. Active rates are up 1%, spot rates down half a percent, replacement rate is positive 7%. This means the new contract rates are about 7% above the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates are up 1%, spot rates up 3%, and replacement rate is positive 12%. On the intermodal side, active rates are flat, spot rates up 2%, and replacement rate up 6%. Finally, on the flatbed, active, active rates are down half a percent, spot rates up half a percent, and replacement rate is positive. 10%. So, wow, a lot of stuff's happening, Ina. What do you think are the big takeaways? I think the, the takeaways, which has been very uh, similar to the last few week, last few updates, mm-hmm. is that active rates are continuing to go up, especially dry van, temp control, and in a model. Um, and uh, spot rates are bouncing around, I think, yeah. in, you know, the last few months. It's, you know couple of weeks up, couple of weeks down, but no major upticks or major downticks. Yeah, so the, the active rates are going up slightly, but the we're still seeing positive high single and double digits for replacement rates. So do you think that active rates, I mean, I guess there's so many more active rates and replacement rates coming in, but the water's still pretty hot coming in with new contract rates, right? Yes, yes. I think, I think these are also uh, either the annual bids, uh, coming into fusion now, um, and also, you know, the the rates that are falling off the routing guides, um, acceptance, you know, we are falling off the acceptance ratios. Mm-hmm. The shippers are continuing to go and try to get, um, you know, contract rates uh, so that they can depend on it and they can plan for it. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to catch up um, at some point. Is the active rates going to be because, I mean, you make the point that active rates are pretty high year over year, right? How high are they year over year at this point? Yeah, so we, we're seeing about 24.5% year wow. over year. And uh, that is, um, you know, so July and last July, 2020, uh, July, we were a few months off of the bottom where we bottomed out. And we don't want to, you know, uh, put all of that, you know, impact uh, purely due to COVID because we were actually on a downward trend, um, you know, all the way from like November 2018 to May May 2020 was a complete downward trend. So we, we've been on an upward trend since uh, May 2020. So year over year, we are seeing about 24.5% continuing to increase. Yeah, and the amount of trucking is still going to increase because, you know, you hear all the stories, the, the ports are clogged, the inland ports are clogged, intermodal is at capacity, so it seems like shippers are shifting more to truckload. And so, you know, that's going to just exacerbate things even more. Yeah, I think I think all the potential overflows, right, I think intermodals now clogged, uh, truckload is, you know, the only... Um, the only other way, uh, and and then even LTL is clogged uh, or getting to capacity. Right. We never talked about LTL being uh, capacitated, but it's it's getting capa- you know capacity limited as well. And so is so is uh, you know a global 
air freight as opposed to ocean containers. So uh, it seems like shippers are just scrambling to find any capacity they can on any modes. And it's just, um, I don't know, do you see anything ending this year? Do you think it's going to wait till 2022? I think it, it should, it should, you know, uh, with the, the, the retail season coming to an end, potentially we should see some normalcy. But until then, I think shippers are scrambling to get things back, you know, in shore before time for the retail season. And uh, they are evaluating going from even ocean to air freight at this point in time right. to get right. products um, in time. Yeah. So it's it's the supply chains are still a mess right now. And so transportation is kind of bearing the brunt of that. Um, all right. So I guess that concludes this week's truckload market update. Thanks, Enam. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Enam Ayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freight Find or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.caplis at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at The Freight Find, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.